Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text for this All Saints Day of Observance is the first chapter of Colossians verse 12 where the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit of God says give thanks unto the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. This is our text. Dear friends in Christ, a question for you history buffs. Who was the oldest man to ever go into space? Who was he? If you're thinking John Glenn, you're right. Eight years ago this weekend, at 77 years of age, John Glenn became the first U.S. Senator to orbit the Earth. Now, I know that there are probably a few of us, and perhaps more than a few of us, who would like to see a lot of Senators orbiting the Earth, <laughs> and probably staying there much longer than John Glenn did. But he's the only one to have done it, and he indeed did do it. And of course, he was qualified to do so, qualified in good part because he had done it before qualified in good part because he had done it back in 1962 when he was the first American to orbit planet Earth. And then 37 years later he did it again sailing through 144 laps at 342 miles above the Earth and the space shuttle Discovery which was his home above home for a glorious nine days in fact, so glorious a time was it for John Glenn, the three hours into the flight, ground control asked the orbiting 77-year-old astronaut, Senator, how he was doing, and he replied, I feel fine. Today is beautiful. It's great. I just can't even describe it. After which, Kurt Brown, the shuttle commander, added his status report, and he said, let the record show that John Glenn has a smile on his face from ear to ear, and we haven't been able to remove that smile yet. What a fascinating experience that must have been for John Glenn, to be able to repeat it twice, to do what so few do. And how fitting, whether they knew it or not, that all of that was occurring just a few days before what we celebrate as All Saints Day, the day that of the church year when the thoughts of God's people also soar heavenward, the day when we dwell for a time upon our home above this home and upon all of those who by faith have already gone there before us, all of those who are now experiencing far more than John Glenn could have experienced and what he did, experiencing those gloriously exciting sights and those gloriously exciting sounds, those, those heavenly things that St. Paul tells us and speaks of so eloquently in Scripture when he says that they are seeing those things which I here hath not seen and those saints in heaven are hearing there those things which we here on earth do not hear. And those saints in heaven are experiencing things there that we here on earth have not and cannot experience. Those are the things that await those whom God loves and who love him. And when you think of all of those things that the saints of heaven even now are experiencing, those who have gone on before us, it brings a smile to our face, but to their face, those who are there, it is indeed a smile that won't be removed. 
And that's the status quo. That's the existing condition. That's the current state of affairs for each and every saint of God who is already there enjoying that humanly expressible experience of heaven, our home above home as we're away from it for a while. And what's more is though none of us will ever experience what John Glenn experienced twice in outer space because none of us may ever qualify to do that flight, we all, we all through faith in Jesus Christ will experience those far greater experiences which heaven's saints experience today because our text for today tells us that God is the qualifier. God is the one that qualified you and he's qualified me and he qualifies all of his own, all that would bear that title saints. God is the qualifier around here. And the only one, God is the one, it says, who qualifies us. As we heard Paul say in our text, God is the one who qualifies us to share in that inheritance of the saints in light. And how is it done? What makes someone a saint? What enables you to be able to leave here today bearing that great and wondrous title? Well, first, you can be certain that it's not because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, not because of what we might ever in the course of our years here on earth do, as though sainthood were something that we could merit or we could accomplish on our own. The making of a saint is the exclusive right and the exclusive prerogative of Almighty God. It's what He, by His work, not what we, by our work, do. Luther addresses this so plainly, clearly, this idea of saintless, saintliness being the result of what man himself can do, and, and Luther will have nothing to do with it because he grew up believing that he could accomplish that. And we even hear of it yet today, of people becoming saints and running the fast track and becoming saints quickly before others in time past have. Luther says all this nonsense, and that's what he calls it, all this nonsense, he says, stems from the old notion that when we hear of saintliness, we have to look for only great, splendid works of pious men and gaze at the saints in heaven as if they had earned it, and as if they had merited it. But we, Luther says, speaking of those who shared his confession, we, Luther says, we say that the real saints of Christ must indeed be good, stout sinners. Sinners who became saints through a foreign righteousness, through something that wasn't theirs but from outside of them, an alien righteousness, a, a foreign holiness, he says, namely through that holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ which is given to them by faith and thus becomes their own. So far, Luther. You see, saints are not self-made as though they can claim their title as something that they have accomplished like we do with master's degrees or bachelor's degrees or PhDs or whatever it might be. Your title as saint, and there is none greater, is a gift that has been given to you by God. Saints are God-made. They're sinners like us who, according to our text today, are qualified by God to share in the inheritance of heaven.
what we, because of our sinful nature, could never make of ourselves, God has made of us. Because only God's, God's got what it takes to take what we've got and to make us into something that we could never have made ourselves into. Only God can do that. After all, what could we possibly do to undo what sin has done to us? perfect example of that is every little child has been brought up to this font in the years of our history as a congregation. What could any little child do that any of you carried up to this font? What could that child have done for itself? What possibly could it do for itself in its sinful mortality with which you brought it? It could do nothing, absolutely nothing for itself. But scripture says, when the kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done or do in righteousness, but rather according to his mercy, how by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out, baptismal talk, upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. That's how you become an heir of righteousness. That's how you get that inheritance of the saints because God has done it for you through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Any parent who has come to this font or any other font in all of Christendom bearing in arms a little sinner walks away from the font of God's regeneration grace by bearing a saint, a brand new one. Doesn't that truth put a whole new light then and what St. John writes in our first lesson for today when he talks about the, the multitude of white-robed saints, you bring up a child to the font, often they're wearing that white robe, or they at least would be wearing that white robe. And they're counted then among that multitude of white-robed saints that no one could number from all tribes and peoples and languages. And then as we heard in the lesson, one of the elders addressed me, St. John writes, and he says, Who are those clothed in white robes, and from whence have they come? And I said unto him, Sir, you know. And he said unto me, These are those coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And how often you've witnessed that washing happening. How often you've witnessed the making of a brand new saint right here. As God, through his mighty word, working in connection with earthly water, links a little sinner by faith to Jesus Christ, even to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, where the sinner then is bathed in and by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and clothed with the white robe of Christ's righteousness, it's all a miracle that happens. Miracles unseen by the world, but seen only by faith of God's people. A miracle conversion of a sinner into a saint by the veiled and the hidden power of God's almighty word working. And you have seen it happen so often before. In fact, perhaps it happened to you right here. 
But whether here or elsewhere, the apostolic statement stands, all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves in Christ, St. Paul says, all of you made saints by the inscripturated word of God, doing its work connecting you to the incarnate in the flesh word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what makes you, and alone, what makes you holy. Professing that truth for all the world to hear, our Lutheran confessions put it this way. Listen carefully. For the word of God, they say, is the sanctuary above all sanctuaries. Yea, it's the only one which we Christians know and have. For though we had the bones of all the saints, or though we had all holy and consecrated garments of the saints upon a heap, still that would help us nothing. For all that is a dead thing which can sanctify and make no one holy. But God's word, Luther says, and the confessions repeat, God's word is the treasure which sanctifies everything and by which even all saints themselves were made holy. At whatever hour then God's word is taught, at whatever hour it is preached, heard, read, or meditated upon, there the person, day, and work are sanctified thereby not because of the external work, but because of the word which makes saints of us all. Because of the word that makes saints of us all. The scriptures do indeed teach exactly what our confessions say they teach. They teach that we who are still living here on earth, who have faith in Jesus Christ, are the saints of God. 70% of the time that the word saints is used in the New Testament. 62 times it's used, 43 times, 70% of the time it's used of those who are living and calls them saints. Only 30% of the time is it used of those who are in heaven above. Saints is a title that is rightly ours. And this notion that still is here in our day that saints should be prayed to as intercessors to God, this notion of some special canonized crew of saints to be prayed to is, as Luther once said, a shameful abomination. And so, as Luther said we should do, reclaim your title. Reclaim your title to saints because by God's grace that's what you are. Reclaim the title. That's what God has called you. And think of yourself as being a saint. Sure, you're a sinner. But we're sinners who have been made, made saints by the grace of God. What a difference it would make, wouldn't it, if we would all consistently think of ourselves as the saints and sinners simultaneously that we are? What a difference it would make if we thought of one another as being the saints and Yet the sinners that we can see and experience in our lives that we are, how differently we treat each other. How differently we'd speak of each other and work with each other. How differently we would live with each other as we thought ourselves consistently as being God's saints as well as being the sinners that we see before us. The sinners that we know we are. What a difference it would make as we face the temptations of life and the struggles of life. The struggles with sin and the obstacles and the challenges that life throws at us if we only would remind ourselves daily by God's grace we're his saints. 
what a difference it would make because the Lord has claimed already, as the psalmist says, that God does not forsake his saints. They, he says, are preserved forever. Indeed, as a saint of God, even death, which ultimately comes to us all, even death cannot deny me, it cannot deny you, the inheritance, which our text says that God has in Christ already qualified you and me to share. Because, as the psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death even of his saints. Speaking of the death of the saints, I met with someone only a week ago who wanted to inform me of a couple of special requests for their funeral service. It reminded me of the familiar story that many of you will recall about the, the story of the elderly gentleman who called the pastor to his house to discuss his funeral service. And he asked the pastor for his counsel in selecting hymns that would comfort his family, hymns that would glorify his Lord. He told him what his favorite verses of scripture were that he would like to have read and reviewed with his family. And then the man requested something that really caught the pastor quite off guard. He said, Pastor, I have one more rather unusual request to make. I'd like to have my favorite Bible buried with me. And I'd like to have the Bible opened to Job 19, and where it says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I'd like to have my hand on that page and my finger pointing to that verse. That's what I'd like to have. And well, the pastor said, that's a bit different than what's usually done, but I think that we can, and then interrupted by the man who obviously wasn't done with his request, yet the pastor heard him say, my left hand on Job 19 and my right hand, well, in my right hand, I want to have a fork. And the pastor, not sure that he'd heard right, being quite surprised, said, a fork, did, did you say a fork? And the older man replied, yes, and let me tell you why. He says, when I was a small boy, and I was back on a farm in Iowa, and we were quite poor. We didn't have fancy china, and we only had limited pieces of silverware. The, the favorite part of every special meal to me, whether it was Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, whatever it might be, was when after the main course, my mother would look at me and my sisters and my little brother, and she would say, all right, now it's time to clear the table. And then she would smile at us, and she would say those all-important words, and by the way, keep your fork. My favorite part, he said, because then I knew that something really special was coming. Something of real substance was about to be served, not just jello or pudding, but something that required my fork, a cake or a pie, perhaps, or some fancy dessert that would surpass any dessert that my mother had ever made before. And throughout all my years, he said, whenever at the end of a meal someone would say, keep your fork, these words of my mother would always bring that same sensation of anticipation and excitement because whenever I would hear them, that same childhood thought would come to mind, aha, something great is about to be given me. Now, I could see a palm branch in one's hand as we see in our lesson for this morning, palm branch would make sense, but a fork, never heard of that. A fork is a symbol of something special to be anticipated, a symbol of confident expectation of something greater yet to come. 
be it a fork, palm branch, cross, whatever. Today we celebrate All Saints Day. And that's our day. It's our day, as our text says, to give thanks to the Father who has already qualified us to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. Your day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.